Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. I'm babysitting again for my sister's kids, and I feel really disloyal saying this about my niece and nephew, but these children really give me the creeps. Hi, Tucker. Hey, Katie. Hi, Hi, Aunt Kayone. For our activities tonight, I brought some pencils. Charlie, Charlie, can you play? What's that? It's a Mexican supernatural tradition where you use pencils to summon the ghost of a dead child. Okay, that is so weird. You don't play that game, do you? We used to, but it got boring. Now we summon full-grown demons. That's the dark shape on the roof. Well, I want us to use the pencils to write and draw. I know this kid, and he was taking a test, and he didn't know the answers, so he put one sharp pencil in each nostril and slammed his head onto his desk. I want to write a story about a paranoid Satanist billionaire death merchant who buys up all the pencils in the world and hides them on a sheep ranch in Australia. Okay, that's it. We're not going to discuss any more strange things. We're just going to enjoy these pencils, these wonderful, simple things that come from the earth. And I'm going to turn on the radio, and we're going to hear a show about pencils. And nobody is going to say anything to me that'll give me nightmares, okay? And now he stopped chewing pencils when his fingernails turned yellow. Colin McEnroe. Those two, they creep me out, too. I wouldn't babysit for them. They they sound like very alarming people. All right, so we are going to talk about pencils today. And it is sort of in that, you know, grand John McPhee tradition of, you know, you take a humble, taken-for-granted, everyday object and really look at it closely. And not only does it tell you its story, it tells you the stories of all kinds of related fields and people. Today, talking about pencils, we're going to talk about everybody from John Steinbeck to Armand Hammer to who knows who else. Uh, and because the whole the whole story is an amazing story. So um, later in the show, we're going to talk to David Reese, who's kind of the new rock star of the pencil world. Uh, David Reese uh, was, was a famous cartoonist uh, with stuff like Get, Get Your War On. Uh, he's now the author of many books, but legendarily, the book How to Sharpen a Pen- How to Sharpen Pencils, a practical and theoretical treatise on the artisanal craft of pencil sharpening. He runs an artisanal pencil, pencil sharpening service. I think it's twelve fifty. Twelve fifty. I think you. Uh, he'll sharpen a pencil for you. He sends you the shavings back along with the sharpened pencil in a special case and a certificate. Uh, anyway, you'll hear about all that. That's coming later. Uh, for the first couple of segments here, we're going to be talking to uh, two pencil experts, uh, very different kinds of pencil experts in some ways. Uh, Kirsten Barrett is a sixth-generation pencil maker with General Pencil Company, now working in the sales and marketing office uh, of their San Francisco uh, branch, and or I guess that's where their office is. And, and, and now 
we're going to start, though, with Henry, Henry Petrosky. I mean, you start talking about doing a show about pencils, and then you start talking about Henry Petrosky. You know that expression, he wrote the book on some... He really did that. Henry Petrosky wrote the definitive book about pencils. It's called The Pencil, A History of Design and Circumstance. He's a professor of civil engineering and history at Duke University, uh, author of many other books as well, including his latest, The House with 16 Handmade Doors, A Tale of Architectural Choice and Craftsmanship. You might have seen that featured in the New York Times uh, home section uh, a couple weeks ago. So, Henry Petrosky, such an honor to have you on the show. Well, thank you. It's an honor to be here. So let's begin with um, the story of the pencil. Historically, the, the early history of the pencil is essentially the history of graphite, right? The accidental discovery of a mineral that had certain properties. Tell us about that accidental discovery. Well, the legend is that there was a, a, a storm uh, up in the Lake District of England uh, that uh, tore up the roots of a, a big oak tree. And uh, up with the roots came this strange new mineral that, that nobody had seen before. Uh, but they soon discovered that it uh, was good for drawing and uh, uh, writing. And especially since that was sheep country, it was especially good for marking sheep and uh, you know to identify them as to whose they were. Well, uh, when you find something new, uh, what do you call it? That, that actually is always a problem. Uh, if you're there... Uh, looking at it with somebody, you can say this here or look at that. But if you want to communicate you know, beyond the visual, you have to come up with a name for it. Uh, in this case, uh, they uh, tried to name it, as uh, is often the case, according to what it did, uh, what its properties were, uh, how you could use it, and what it reminded you of. And what it reminded people most of was uh, lead, metallic lead, because lead was known and used to make marks on paper and parchments, but it made a very light mark lead. And uh, the, uh, the new material, which you uh, called graphite, it wasn't called graphite for another few centuries, uh, the new material uh, began to be called something that was like lead. In some cases, it was called black lead because it made a blacker mark than, than lead, which was very descriptive. Uh, Latin was the uh, language of scholarship here in the uh, 16th century when uh, this all happened. Uh, so another name for the mineral was plumbago. Plumbago is, is Latin for that which behaves like lead or acts like lead. Uh, uh, so the name uh, uh, tied it with lead, graphite with lead, from the very, very beginning. Uh, the uh, problem is that uh, for every uh, good uh, that a new material has, it also has some bad aspects. In the case of, of we'll call it graphite, since that's what we know it as. Mm -hmm. In the case of graphite, uh, sure, you could write with it and draw with it, but your fingers got very dirty in the process. Uh, this, so this was one of its drawbacks. You know, for, for every positive, there's a, there's a negative. So what people began to do at the beginning was uh, some would wrap it, a piece of this graphite in, in string, uh, in order to protect their, their fingers from the uh, dirty, slippery graphite. But then eventually, uh, after a while, uh, it was uh, encased in wood, uh, a wooden tube uh, or uh, some other piece of joinery uh, would be made in which uh, a piece of graphite, a sliver of graphite, could be, could be inserted. 
And that would be really the origin of the pencil as, as, as we know it. But uh, the, the graphite was uh, very, um, oh, uh, expensive, let's say, or scarce. Yeah, I mean, military applications. It had had all sorts of uses other than than writing. So, getting a piece of graphite that was suitable for a pencil was was not so not so uh, easy a task. You had to find it, uh, or somebody willing to sell it, and then you had to have the price being right. So these these the graphite mines were they were like precious metal mines, right? You had workers uh, working under I think you know, guards with loaded guns. They were searched when That's they right. left the mines to make sure they weren't taking some of this precious graphite with them. That's right. And and at the, initially, this mine in the uh, Lake District of England was really the only source of graphite known in the world. Uh, so that made it doubly important. In fact, England for a long time uh, supplied the world with with graphite. But there's a lesson uh, in, in that, uh, too, because uh, England didn't worry about what was going to happen when the graphite ran out, when the mine went dry. Uh, so by the, uh, oh, about the middle of the 19th century, this happened. And, and England, which had been the world leader in making quality, quality pencils, uh, basically uh, had to take a back seat to uh, Germany, uh, increasingly the United States, and uh, eventually uh, Eastern European countries and then Asian countries. And one of the reasons for this was that when war broke out between England and France in 1793, France couldn't get any more of this English graphite. It was the only source. And so we had, so enter, or entree, French innovator Nicolas Jacques Comte. Uh, he's the guy who, who figured out how to make the composite or the compound that, that we call pencil lead today, right? Well, that's correct. Uh, since France couldn't get the English graphite, which was uh, so pure that it could be used straight out of the mine effectively, uh, France did what today we would call research and development, uh, military uh, research and development. And what, uh, what was found was that if you ground up inferior graphite, very uh, impure graphite, and you uh, refined it by taking out the impurities, there are various processes of doing this, and then uh, you had very fine graphite, but you had to recombine it in some way. So what they did is they uh, mixed it with clay, very high-quality clay. And uh, when that was mixed together, it produced sort of a doughy mixture that they could extrude into different shapes. And uh, then when they baked this, as you would a ceramic uh, ashtray or something, they got very good pencil leads that they could encase in wood and uh, to this day, uh, you know, these, uh, this, what this doughy substance, clay and graphite mixture, is what we call lead, even though it has no lead in it. And interestingly, by varying the uh, proportions of graphite and clay, you could get different uh, hardnesses or darknesses of pencil lead uh, from, you know, very, very faint to very, very uh, dark. And this was a considerable advantage over just taking what you got out of the mine. Uh, we're talking to uh, Henry Petrosky right now. We're talking about pencils. If you have questions, comments, uh, your own pencil legend or your own pencil preference, uh, 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. This is an object which, uh, as technology tries to or, or has the unintended consequence uh, of rendering it less necessary, people seem to be therefore placing even more artisanal and curatorial emphasis on. So it's one of the reasons 
reasons we're having this conversation today. Before we bring in Kirsten, um, we should say one more thing, which was that, that the, the French, having figured out this great process for, for making essentially what the, the modern-day compound or pencil lead is, uh, they weren't all that generous uh, uh, about telling anybody else how to do it, uh, nor were the Germans, nor were the English. So when Americans wanted to make their own pencils, they essentially had to reinvent the process and now enter Henry David Thoreau, right? Well, that's right. Uh, Henry David Thoreau, uh, his family uh, had a pencil business. We call it today a cottage industry. They basically made pencils in the back of their house. Uh, one, uh, one relative knew of a source of, of graphite in New Hampshire that wasn't very good. Uh, so what Henry David Thoreau had to do was figure out how to use this inferior graphite to make good pencils. And he effectively used the French uh, system. Although it was you know, technically like a military uh, secret, uh, it, it was known by certain people. And, and somehow Thoreau got wind of this. But what he had to do then, even though he knew uh, how he could make pencils, he had to figure out how he could refine the graphite, how he could take out the impurities from this uh, inferior graphite. And he did that, and, and he could be called you know, a mechanical engineer for having, having done this. He figured out a system of grinding the graphite into a very, very fine powder and then separating the powder from the impurities and then recombining it with lead and, and so forth. Uh, Documents show that around the middle of the 19th century that the Thoreau pencils were considered uh, at least the equals of those made in England, which, of course, were on their decline at, at this, this time. And yet so, so, yet so easy is the pencil to overlook that, yeah, that Thoreau himself, when he's making his list of things that he needs to take with him to the woods and making it with a pencil, forgets to write pencils on the list of things yeah, that he needs. Yes, that's right. He, he makes a point of listing paper. <laughs> write on, but, but not a pencil to write with. Henry Petrosky, um, hold your next thought for a second. I want to uh, add to this conversation uh, one more guest here, uh, and that is, and by the way, we have some people calling in here at 860-275-7266. We will get to you as soon as possible. Chet in Branford, John in Kensington. Oh, I know which John that is. Uh, Kirsten Kirsten, uh, Barrett is the sixth-generation pencil maker with General Pencil Company. She's now working in the sales and marketing at at their uh, San Francisco office. Welcome to the show, Kirsten. Kirsten Barrett. In some ways, Henry Petrosky, in describing um, the, what were innovations for, for Thoreau, what were innovations uh, for the pencil makers of the 19th century, is describing a process that, although it's gotten very streamlined and, and high tech, it's still kind of the same process, right? They still make pencils pretty much the same way? That's correct. We actually um, still make pencils with the same technology that we had from the 1800s. Um, in fact, one of the machines that we use today is actually from 1860. So it is pretty um, a historic process that has 17 steps, and we're still uh, proud to be uh, making pencils on the same wood floors from the original factory. 
Now, um, in terms of the ingredients, I mean, one of the things that we haven't talked to Henry yet about is cedar. Cedar was the the thing, the wood initially that was the the select the the wood of choice for pencil makers, and it actually led to the um, uh, the cutting down of a lot of American cedar trees across the South and Southwest. And I guess when they started taking apart old Tennessee cabins and split rail fences in Mississippi and rocking chairs in Georgia and front porch steps in Kentucky just to get the cedar back to make more pencils. What do you make pencils out of now? Uh, we use uh, something called sustained yield incense cedar. So it is a renewable resource. Um, what's special about it is that it's um, harvested um, so that we replenish the forest um, by a two-to-one ratio so that there is ample supply for future generations. So that's one of the positive things about using sustained yield incense cedar. It comes from southern Oregon and northern California, um, so it is still um, from the West Coast. And what's special about using cedar in pencils is that it has a straight grain, so it um, ensures straight, smooth sharpening, so you get that nice centered point. Um, It also has the nice smell that kind of brings us all back to our childhood days. Um, But incense cedar is really the premium wood for a, a quality pencil. Um, we're talking to uh, Kirsten Barrett. Uh, she's from the General Pencil from General Pencil Company. Henry Petrosky also with us, the author of The Pencil, A History of Design and Circumstance. Uh, I, I, one of the things that I've heard, and I don't know how true it is, um, is that um, is that this whole idea of the number two pencil, which we were all told to bring with us to our various standardized uh, tests to fill in the little bubbles. The, the, I read somewhere that there is no real such thing as a number two pencil that would be the same number two pencil across the board, I- irrespective of where it was manufactured or who manufactured it. Uh, Kristen, uh, am I wrong about that? Well, an, a number two pencil is, a, is going to be um, called an HB um, lead, so basically it's right in the center of hardnesses for your graphite. Um, so we call it a 2HB, and Henry might know more of the details of the history of the naming of it, but um, we do, a number two pencil is essentially an HB pencil, so whether you're using it, it doesn't matter which company it's from, it's, it's graded on the HB scale. Uh, the HB pencil will be consistent uh, with a, a number two pencil. Henry Petrovsky, do you want to elaborate, elaborate on that? Oh, yes, the, the, the number system number two uh, came from uh, the French research of of mixing graphite and clay and the French realized that they could um, mix them in different portions and they used numbers to distinguish those. Uh, The HB system is an older system. H basically stood for hard or uh, well hard, a very light mark, a pencil was hard, and B stood for a very black mark, so those were the extremes. So HB, as we heard, was just in in the middle. Uh, HB is still the system that the Europeans use, and also the Japanese uh, use HB a lot, the HB system. Well, you know, in a way that does uh, credit to to Kirsten's uh, family business, uh, Henry Petrosky, at a certain point, American pencils, despite whatever their origins were in England and the fact that Germans got very good at it and had, you know, a factory town like Stein that was an entire town that was basically based around the pencil and and every all the services were, uh, well, it was, a, it was a factory type town. There was a certain point at which American pencils really kind of got the premier reputation, right, and were coveted. Wasn't it, I can't remember whether it was your book or not, but there was somewhere where I read that at some treaty signing, uh, the Russians actually stole all the American pencils. Yes, I've heard that story too. 
I think one of the reasons the American pencil started dominating uh, was that the best pencil wood, uh, uh, before incense cedar was used, came from the southeastern United States. It was uh, uh, southern red cedar was the, the wood in particular, and it had a straight grain and a nice aroma, and it didn't warp and so forth. So uh, the European countries, especially the Germans, would come over to America, buy the wood, ship it back to Germany, assemble the pencils, and then ship the pencils back to America. Well, that was very inefficient, as you can imagine, and it made the pencils expensive. So the Germans began to send representatives over to the United States uh, to uh, not only buy up wood, but stay in America with that wood and uh, start factories over here. And that's the origin of a lot of the uh, early American German-based pencil companies. Is, Kirsten, is that the, essentially the origin of, of your family's company? Um, our origin began in the 1860s. My, actually, my great-great-great-grandfather um, was from Germany and had learned um, kind of in Germany how, to, how pencils were made and worked in a pencil factory. He started uh, the American Lead Pencil Company um, with a friend in the 1860s. Um, so that was kind of the beginning of General Pencil Company. That was its early days. Um, he was forced out by the investors at the time um, in 1889. He and his son, uh, Oscar, started what is now General Pencil Company. So that was the beginning of our, our story. And um, what was kind of unique about the story was that all American pencil companies at that time were getting their cores or the graphite from Germany. And uh, in World War One, we weren't able to import cores from Germany because of the blockade. So what was special about General Pencil was that we were starting to make all of our pencil leads from scratch at that time. So in the 19, early 1900s and into 1930s, we were developing pencil cores. And uh, at one point, um, Oscar developed over 300 different types of pencils in our factory. Um, as long as we're talking about those kinds of innovations, uh, Kirsten, um, is it um, my understanding there's something on a pencil called the ferrule, right? Which is that that's the sort of the metal thing at the top of the pencil. Yeah, and, it attaches the eraser to the pencil. It's kind of just the, the means to the end. <laughs> and and since we're uh, we're originating here in Connecticut, I understand uh, there's a Waterbury company with some kind of World War II uh, munitions purpose that also wound up making ferrules for you. You know, that one uh, might be over my head on, on that. I, I'm not sure about that. I do know that during World War II when there was a, um, we weren't able to get our ferrules or there was a steel uh, shortage, we were uh, making special plastic ferrules for the war efforts. I do know that. All right. I'm no, not I, yeah. sure about the connection. Yeah, from my, from my notes, it's the Waterbury Clydell Manufacturing, which was making brass howitzer shells for World War II and started making uh, ferrules. Uh, for you, and I guess only for for you. So that's the uh, water before somebody from Waterbury calls in, which is <laughs> which is absolutely going to happen. You know, um, Henry Petrovsky. Uh, as long as we're telling those kinds of stories, we absolutely have to tell the story, or you absolutely have to tell the story of. Um, the, the rather complicated decision by the American industrialist uh, Armin Hammer uh, to to make pencils in in Ru- in a Russian factory. Tell us tell us how this came to be, and then what happened. Oh, you're testing my memory now. <laughs> uh, well, I th- Armin Hammer was in Russia for some other purpose, and uh, and he became aware of uh, uh, the, the the Russian uh, pencil. Uh, business that I think was, you know, available for, for purchase uh, 
but I don't remember much beyond beyond that. Well, having had, had a recent perusal of your book, uh, I'll mention a couple of other things about it, which was great. I think he actually had he actually had to woo Lenin uh, for the opportunity to do this. Uh-huh. He started it there, and then I think they became somewhat uncomfortable with his level of commitment to capitalistic practices, and either bought him out or squeezed him out. It was renamed the Sacco and Vanzetti Pencil Factory yes, uh, <laughs> in honor of some revolutionary heroes. And I think it became famous, I think it's sort of used sometimes as an example of the factory that makes imaginary amounts of things in order to meet quotas. You know, that whole notion within a, a closed Soviet system that you have certain quotas you have to hit. I, I think the Sacco and Vanzetti of pencil factory is sometimes used as sort of the paradigmatic example of the uh, of the factory that's not really making as many whatevers uh, as it claims to be making just to keep the soviet state happy yeah. <laughs> um, we're going to take a quick break here we're going to talk more about pencils we've got a b- bunch of calls here on the board people with questions uh, our number 860-275-7266 we'll take a break we'll be back this is what i heard him say All right, we're back. Uh, we sent our um, outstanding intern, Allison Ehrenreich, out into the streets of the world uh, to ask some questions about pencils. Do we have that? Do you use pencils? I have a job that actually goes back to when people actually did drafting, so I still have mechanical pencils. Well, do you have a preference between pencils? I like the... <laughs> this is such a funny question. I like the mechanical pencils, but the lead keeps breaking because they don't give us the proper lead. <laughs> Do you like pencils? Pencils? Uh, no. Pens. <laughs> Why pens? Uh, I just think you can undo whatever's there, you know, pencil-wise, so I go with the pen all the time. Yes, yeah, use pencils all the time. Um, actually, I'm a mathematician, so I make a lot of mistakes and I erase a lot. I prefer pencils over pens, actually. Do you have a reason for that? It goes back to my uh, childhood years, and it's just what I'm used to, I guess. Do you think that pencils have a future with us or that they're going to become obsolete? Oh, they definitely have a future. Definitely. Yeah. Yes, definitely. All right. And let me take this opportunity to also correct one sort of historical legend, urban myth. Uh, there's this whole story, you encountered it all over the place, that um, that NASA spent this incredible amount of money developing a space pen, a pen that would work uh, in outer space. And, and this is a story is always told with a lot of embellishments, uh, you know, about how much money was spent and all the design stuff. And then the punchline is the Russians used a pencil. And it actually turns out not to be true. And in fact, pencils aren't a good thing to use in outer space on spaceships because of one of the things that uh, this was triggered by by those uh, those comments collected by Allison that um, uh, first of all, there's a problem which Henry uh, Petrosky would refer to as bops, broken off pencil points. Uh, you don't want things like that flying around <laughs> inside a cabin. But even just sort of dust that comes off the graphite and, and stuff like that, you don't want that in a, a space capsule. And uh, you also don't want something that is in, at least theoretically flammable, uh, you know, a piece of wood floating around your cabin either. So for all of those reasons, NASA and other space programs, very nervous about pencils, don't like them so much. Um, so. 
but but lots of other people do. Although, so with us right now, Henry Petrosky, he really literally wrote the book on pencils, The Pencil, uh, A History of Design and Circumstance. Also with us, uh, Kirsten Barrett, uh, the sixth generation of pencil makers with a general pencil company. So, Kirsten Barrett, I want to ask you, how are things going these days? I mean, everybody's working on, on tablets. Everybody's working on uh, laptops. Um, what, what's the role of the pencil in, in American writing and education these days? We're optimistic. We are having fun making pencils. We're actually the last uh, standing pencil company in the USA where we make pencils from start to finish um, in our factory. And so we are seeing kind of a turn to people wanting to embrace the pencil and enjoy slowing down and holding the pencil in their hand and using a tactile object to create every idea that they have on paper. So not only are people using it, you know, for their day-to-day still, like you heard on those uh, on the sound clip just now, but we're also noticing that with graphic design and a lot of different new technologies, people still have to begin with basic drawing one classes and different uh, design courses that involve just a basic pencil. So it's still relevant. It's unique. It, it really can't be replicated by a tablet. So right now we're feeling good about making pencils in the USA. Um, and Henry Petrosky, um, obviously, whenever we look at an object, an object that people use, there's a psychology that goes along with using that object. And, and in the way that a pencil is and, and the way that it allows for corrections, um, it, it's not exactly the same thing as a pen. It's not even close to the same thing as a pen. Have you given much thought to sort of how the human being interacts with this object, the pencil, differently from, from how it reacts to or how we react to anything else we might use to make a mark? Well, the, to me, uh, there's a, there's a, a very uh, distinct difference in feel between a pencil and a pen. Uh, pens, at least if they're reasonably good quality, uh, are, are uh, generally uh, smoother to write to write with. But uh, pencils, if you get a good again a good quality pencil, will feel about the same as a, as a pen. The uh, the nice thing that that I like about a pencil is that you can write or draw in any direction, and the the pencil really follows follows your hand really effortlessly. But with a pen, obviously, with a with a fountain pen, the nib pen, uh, you can't do that. And uh, I find that ballpoint pens and a lot of the felt tip pens uh, don't work equally in all all directions. So that that's one thing that that, that I find uh, favoring the pencil. And again, a, a very good quality pencil, meaning one that doesn't have a lot of uh, scratchy ingredients in the lead. Uh, is there a pencil uh, within arm's reach of where you are right now? What kind of pencil are you using these days? Oh, I, I, I actually have been using mechanical pencils pretty much since the time I wrote the book <laughs> because uh, I found one of the problems with a wooden pencil is that as you sharpen it, it gets smaller, of course, and it, so it changes its feel, and that has always uh, disturbed me. Uh, the mechanical pencil, uh, since the lead is such as especially the very thin lead mechanical pencil since the lead is such a small part of it as the lead gets used up uh, the pencil doesn't uh, really feel any different so it has a more constant uh, feel one you know one group of people who obviously care a lot about pencils are writers um, and there's something about the pencil i think partly because it it invites 
change. You know, if you're using a pencil, the pencil is basically saying to you, well, if you don't like this, you could erase it and write something else. Um, so, you know, we've got in your book chronicles a lot of uh, writers who had their own specific pencil or rituals or who's, you know, whether it's Nabokov or, or Roald Dahl or, you know, Hemingway. All these people are using writers, although it seems as though the great pencil obsessive among Nobel Prize winners, uh, among the great writers that, that whose habits we know a lot about is Steinbeck, right? Steinbeck, not only does he feel like that the pencil is intrinsic to his writing, uh, but he uses a lot of pencils and even kind of switches them up based on weather conditions and things like that. Well, well, that's right. I think if if you do spend time and thought with with pencils, uh, you begin to realize that they they do change with weather conditions, the humidity in in particular, uh, and uh, the the feel as I as I mentioned. Uh, a lot of writers have also uh, used the pencil in sort of a ritualistic way. They would expect, if they had a secretary, to have a fresh set of fully sharpened pencils on their desk in the morning, and they could measure their progress by how many of these pencils they, they wore down to a point that was a little too dull for them to proceed, so they'd go and take another one. And when they're out of pencils, they're through writing for the day. Or they uh, they might... Uh, get up and sharpen their own pencils, uh, some writers, because that would be a way of change of pace and uh, uh, putting some something more physical into the, the act of, of writing, other than just sitting at a desk or standing at a, at a desk. So, so yes, I think writers have very personal relationships with pencils, and uh, they become have become very attached to a particular brand and a particular uh, number, whether it be uh, you know number two, number two and a half, or HB, or however it might be be described. Yeah, I, one of the writers I think you're alluding to is Roald Dahl, who used uh, only pencils with yellow casings. He had six sharpened pencils ready at the beginning of each day, and when all six pencils had become blunt enough to be no longer satisfactory or, satisfactory or usable, uh, he would resharpen them. But as you say, writers are always looking for ways to kind of measure out their time and maybe also kind of an excuse to stop writing uh, at a certain point. I, I would assume that the other um, person, the other p- group of people, uh, and other group of people who would be pencil obsessed are people who, who kind of design and tinker. Because once again, you know, you want to be able to erase, you want to, you want something that makes a less permanent line. And I guess, for example, Thomas Edison, right? He was a pencil guy. Yes. Yeah, he carried uh, short pencils. He liked pencils that were short enough that they could fit in his shirt pocket and not stick out so they'd fall out. Uh, and uh, they're sort of like golf pencils, if, uh, you know, we, we want to think of something that's familiar to us today. Uh, Edison would often uh, order special length pencils, uh, like golf pencil length, to uh, have enough on hand. Um, we're getting we're getting some tweets here at WNPR. Colin um, CT Girl About Town tweets: No pencils, not even for crossword puzzles. Although some of the one of the problems, um, Henry Petoskey, with with crossword puzzles, I mean, you want to use a pencil in case you make a mistake. Although I find the relationship between the pencil and the kind of paper that the New York Times magazine is printed on to be very unsatisfactory for me. I, I, for some reason or other, I feel like I can't make a hard enough mark or something. I mean, one of the things your book goes into also is all kinds of complicated physics that that go into you know when a pencil point will break and stuff like that. But you you want to have the right relationship between the pencil and the the actual kind of paper you're using. Well, that's right. And for crossword puzzles and newspapers, I would recommend a very soft pencil, as soft as you can get, a number one or 
or number B or 2B, uh, editors, pa newspaper editors, when they used to edit in the real paper, on real paper, before there were, you know, all the computer screens, used to use very soft pencils as, as editing devices. They, the soft pencil makes a very dark mark without your having to press very hard, and it won't rip the paper. Uh, you don't want the point to be too sharp either, because that obviously will cut into the paper and, and rip it. Um, Kirsten Barrett, um, uh, from the General Pencil Company, is it the case that children, I mean, as a child, you know, growing up in the public school systems uh, all those years ago, I mean, you just sort of, you, you, pencils were your life. Is it still the case that children uh, have the same relationship with pencils that, you know, that a school kid growing up in the 60s, 70s, or 80s would? From, from what we're hearing, because we're out there interacting with customers all over the country, that uh, for all the people still using um, computers or beginning to use computers, they're still using pencils as well. It's kind of the beginning way that people and kids are uh, learning how to write. And even though we hear kind of some negative talk about um, handwriting going away and cursive going away, it still is beginning with a pencil. You can't replicate that. Kirsten <laughs> um, Barrett, it's been so, so great to talk to you. We have one more segment coming up. Henry Petrosky is going to uh, stay with us. Uh, you're about to meet the new rock star of the pencil world. Yeah, there was Steinbeck. Yeah, there was Nabokov. Yeah, there was Thomas Edison. Now there's David Reese, the king of the artisanally sharpened pencil. We'll tell you that and other stories when we come back. Mechanical, but that's not for me. The lead's so thin, I just break it frequently. Ultimate writing utensil is my HB number two pencil. HB number two, HB number two, HB number two, number two pencil. HB number 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 two pencil. Water is to bucket as wood is to. Damn, I paid $200 for this special SAT pencil, and I still don't know any of the answers. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our interns are Katie Pikus, Brittany Hill, and Devin Flabbergaster. Special thanks to Mark Brown for consulting on this show. Executive producer Katie Talarski and Tucker Ives played the creepy kids in our intro. The part of Bill Curry was played by John Steinbeck. For show pages, articles, and photos of the Faith Middleton show staff snorting pencil shavings, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, we celebrate Steve Martin's arrival in Hartford by re-airing our banjo show. And now, back to Colin. Yeah, one quick other musical announcement uh, also tomorrow, if you don't have tickets to, for Steve Martin and Edie Brickell. Martin Hayes, who's been on this show, he's also been on Where We Live. Uh, Mr. Dan Kosky and I both regard him as the absolutely preeminent Irish fiddler, somebody who's fiddling just gets you into a completely different area. It's, you know, there's Martin and then there's everybody else. Anyway, he'll be part of the Festival of Arts and Ideas and Pancakes, uh, International Festival of Pancakes down in New Haven. Uh, he's playing Thursday night, I think it's at Morse Recital Hall, uh, with The Gloaming, which is one of his many uh, Irish traditional music supergroups. So be aware of that. And yeah, I just want to second that emotion about Mark Brown, who came in here and spent... Uh, he is the father of the beautiful and talented Lydia Brown, producer of Where We Live. He came in here and spent hours uh, with Wolfie uh, talking about our pencil strategy for today, which is why we're so incredibly well-prepared. Uh, Brian has just tweeted at us, I take notes in pen, but think with a pencil. You sort of, I sort of get that, too. You know, you're, you're sketching, you're, you're doing that kind of thing. Uh, you do that with a pencil, and you also fiddle with a pencil. There's something about the organic act of fiddling with a pencil 
pencil uh, that makes you think better. Johnny Carson, of course, was uh, famous for fiddling with pencils on his set, uh, and uh, I've just learned that they were uh, special pencils that had erasers on both ends so that he didn't poke somebody's eye out. Um, and in fact, David Reese, uh, our, our new guest, the, the modern rock star of the pencil world, David Reese, when he sharpens a pencil for you, you do get a certificate. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, David Reese, warning you that this is now a dangerous object, correct? Correct, yes, because I've had plenty of people come up to me over the years and show me a black dot on the palm of their hand and say, when I was in third grade, Timmy Jones stabbed me with a pencil and the tip broke off in my hand. We, we got a call. We had a call about that, but didn't get on the air in time. Is that, do you suppose this, that's true? Can, can a, can a, we have Henry Petrosky with us, but I don't think that's in his engineering area of expertise. Is it possible that pencils can make a permanent mark on you, David? Well, I think the, the reason people come up in a panic is because they assume be, they, you know, I'm sure Professor Petrosky already discussed this. And by the way, it's a huge uh, delight to finally get to uh, be on the same show as Dr. Petrosky because I loved his book. But I think a lot of people are in a panic that they have lead poisoning because, that you know, obviously they think pencil lead actually has lead in it, which I'm sure Petrosky has covered is not actually the case. Absolutely. I mean, Henry Petrosky, I, th- I think we dispelled that earlier, didn't we? Yes, we talked about that. Well, thank you, David, for your compliment. I enjoyed your book, too. Thank you very much. I really do appreciate that. We should say that the book is How to Sharpen Pencils, a practical and theoretical treatise on the artisanal craft of pencil sharpening. So, David Rees, the first question you inevitably get, I can tell from reading accompanying literature, is, are you serious? So, how serious are you? When I started this pencil sharpening business, it was because I was broke and I had a job working for the United States Census. And on the first day of staff training, they had us all sharpen government-issued number two pencils because the census forms are filled out in pencil, right? They're Scantron sheets. And we were using tiny plastic single-blade pocket sharpeners. And I remember thinking, like, this is really fun. I haven't sharpened pencils in a long time. Obviously, there's a lot of nostalgic associations with it. The, the physical sensation of it, the, the smell of the wood and the graphite and all these things. And I just asked myself, I wonder if it's possible to get paid to sharpen pencils. I wonder if I can convince people that this is something they should pay money for. And so obviously then I thought of this whole artisan craze that's been going on around the country, especially where I live in the Hudson Valley, Hudson River Valley of New York, where people will pay $15 for a jar of pickles, you know, because it's uh, you know, lovingly handcrafted and, and, and uh, locally sourced brine or what have you. And I decided that was my entree into this world of sharpening pencils for money. And we, at this point, I've done more than 2,000 pencils. We should say you're on exactly the right show. We already did a show about artisanal pickles. We all, all did a show about taxidermy, which is another one of those things, you know, that's sort of coming back and having a moment because it's hands-on and, and, and artisanal. So anything else that you're working on for your show, Going Deep with David Reese, premiering on National Geographic, July 14th. Look at that seamless plug I just did. That was did. beautiful. Yeah. Holy smokes. Anything else you're working on, we're probably interested in, in, in working on it with you. Uh, as I say, you're, you're home right now. You're, well, you're, I appreciate appreciate that. You know, I feel very comfortable right now. I've so, already kicked off my shoes. All right. So walk me through this process. I decided to become a client uh, of David Reese. Um, uh, walk me through the whole transaction. What do I give and what do I get back? So the way most of my orders come in through the website, artisanalpencilsharpening.com. And the current rates uh, are $40 a pencil domestic and uh, 50, I think it's 55 now international. 
Mm-hmm. I had to, be, you know, because I've been in production on this TV show for National Geographic, I had to raise my prices to slow down demand because if I have a bunch of orders outstanding, I'm, I always get very anxious and I worry that they're hanging over my head and the clients are going to be wondering, where's my pencil? How long does it take for this guy to sharpen a pencil? And I tell people it's like six to eight week turnaround time, not because it takes me six weeks to sharpen a pencil, but just because uh, I have a lot of other things that I'm busy with right now, uh, which is an unusual situation for me. So you would place your order, and if you were not going to send in a pencil of your own, which actually was my original business model, I really loved the idea of people sending in their favorite old chewed up, beaten down, dulled pencil, and I would totally refresh it, you know, give it a new lease on life. Um, But what I do now, if people don't send in their own pencil, is I supply uh, yellow number two pencils made by the good people at uh, General Pencil Company, who I understand you've also spoken to today. We have indeed. Um, And those are the pencils that I use for clients who want me to supply the pencil. And then the pencil is sharpened using a variety of techniques, you know, whatever suits my fancy, or if the client has requested a particular style of shavings. Obviously, the shavings produced by a straight blade are going to be different from those produced by a pocket sharpener or by a single burr hand crank sharpener. The shavings are bagged and labeled along with the pencil. The pencil pencil tip is put in a uh, little clear vinyl tube that protects it during shipment, and then the entire pencil is put in a display tube that's labeled to match the label on the shavings bag, and then they also get a certificate. And, uh, yeah, and then everything shows up in the mail, and people – my – understanding is that most people don't actually then take the pencil out of the tube and use it and right. dull it and then send it back to me, which is a shame because, again, that was my original business model. <laughs> I think most people just keep the pencil right. as a good luck token or, you know, I've, had, I've sharpened them as wedding gifts, anniversary gifts, retirement gifts for librarians and teachers. I've done a lot of pencils for that situation. I have had parents order a lucky number two pencil for kids who are about to take the SAT. Presumably those pencils get used and those kids ace the test and go on to achieve great things. No, I I would certainly never use uh, that pencil uh, if I got one. But on the other hand, I would also wonder what what I was supposed to do, and I suppose it's entirely up to me, with that little bag of shavings that you sent back to me. We just heard about people snorting them. I hope that's not a common practice. But, I mean, do you have any anticipation about what people's relationships going to be with this little bag of pencil shavings? So in my book, I do have suggested use of pencil shavings. But For, I think, my clients, I have a feeling that most of them keep the shavings along with their certificate and the pencil just as a suite of objects, you know, almost like a little art installation or something. I've had a lot of clients have sent me in photos where they've had everything framed or put in a nice, you know, box frame that's then put on their office wall or something like that. So for me, the point of returning the shavings was to emphasize, in a weird way, the efficiency and the elegance of the pencil, which is that in order to extend the life of the pencil, obviously you need to maintain it, you need to shave it, and you need to, and this is where the metaphor is very powerful, you need to shorten it, right? Uh, And you need to bring it closer to the ferrule, you need to bring it closer to the eraser, to its own end, its own doom. Uh, And so because the shavings are a crucial part of the pencil and they are the property of whoever has ordered the pencil, I felt it was appropriate to return the shavings in a bag along with the pencil. 
You know, Henry Petrosky, as you're listening to all this, no doubt your mind is worrying to your most recent book, The House with 16 Handmade Doors, because the more that our existence gets reduced to ones and zeros, the more digital we become, the more high tech we become, the more we seem to have this craving for the kind of thing that David Reese is talking about, this and this kind of atavistic yearning for things that are, that are not ones and zeros and that have smells and shavings and, 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 and texture and feel, right? Well, yes, I, I agree. I think what David just uh, said, he articulated it very well. Uh, this this house that I've uh, written about in my new book and that I'm sitting in now, one of the things I did when I first started the, the book, which is a description of how the house was made and built, is I looked for pencil marks on the wood because uh, I feel that uh, the the carpenter that, that made this house uh, must have left some some hints about what he was thinking in the form of pencil marks. I know when I've gotten old furniture underneath the uh, table is uh, our marks of calculation on the backs of drawers or the bottoms of drawers. There would be other calculations. Uh, and, and I've always been fascinated by those because they are an insight into how the person who was working on the, uh, on the piece of furniture uh, thought. Uh, so looking for pencil marks on this house became a, became a challenge and I found very few. So that told me something about the personality of, of the the carpenter, that uh, uh, he uh, probably did a lot of thinking in his head rather than having to uh, work it out with a pencil on the back of a piece of wood that was going to be uh, cut off or, or used in some uh, way that would hide the pencil marks. David Reese, I'm having a poetic aperçu right now as he's talking, because just in that chilling way that you just described, the reduction of the pencil, the constant sharpening of the pencil, which brings it closer to its doom, to its shortening, to its demise, The other, another use of the pencil, and it goes right to the thing that Henry Petrosky is talking about, is to chart the growth of a child, right? Aren't there houses and apartments all over America where are these there, there's little pencil markers on some door jam or some part of the wall or something where, you know, every year or so somebody takes a ruler and makes a little mark to note the growth uh, in the opposite direction that you just described. No, absolutely. We had that in my house growing up uh, in the on the kitchen door frame, inside kitchen door frame, where my little brother and I would, would mark our growth. And yeah, it was done with pencils. So my parents, a... to their credit, were great users of pencils. My dad was a librarian and my mom was a computer programmer. And in both of those situations, even though obviously those fields are very different than they were when my parents started in them 40, 50 years ago, uh, pencils were still a big part of their everyday you know, work practice, their well, look, everyday life. You know, librarians love pencils in a way that really implicitly means they hate pens because pens make permanent marks. We have to stop right now. We have to stop on that poetic aperçu. Henry Petrosky is the author of The Pencil, A History of Design and Circumstance, and David Reese is the author of How to Sharpen Pencils, a practical and theoretical treatise on the artisanal craft of pencil sharpening. I believe this has been a very satisfying show. We look forward to working with David Reese in the future uh, with any of his projects uh, that involve going deeper, deeper into these humble, overlooked aspects of ordinary life. Dear Diary, my only sanity is to write in you. It's my 282nd day on this deserted island, and thanks to the foraging I've been doing, my hands and arms have gotten strong. David Reese, do you do house calls?